0: Do you like bubbles? Oh, who doesn't sure. love bubbles? Okay. <laughs> what do you like about bubbles?
1: They, they float in the air. They, okay. they And they're kind of like shimmery. You can chase shimmery. them around. Okay. okay. Mm-hmm. Welcome once again to Free Associations from the Boston University School of Public Health, the Public Health and Medical Journal Club podcast. For anyone who is as confused by the latest health study as I am by which episode I was supposed to prepare for because mm-hmm. I don't have anything written down here because I I prepared for the wrong episode. Now, to be fair, I did actually read the studies we're talking about today. I just thought I was not the one. I thought we were doing this one next week and not this week. So I'm winging it just a little bit here.
2: But this is a good this is a good experience. I feel like I've been talking with my students lately about the power of improv and public speaking. Totally. So, so you can give it a go here.
1: Okay. Should I do some stand-up comedy <laughs> right. while I'm here?
2: So maybe you're walking why? onto yeah. the bus. I think so. <laughs> yeah.
1: Epidemiology. What Three is epidemiology. the deal <laughs> with epidemiology? Okay. All right. So I am Matt Fox from the Departments of Epidemiology and Global Health at the Boston University School of Public Health. And I am joined once again by Dr. Jessica Liebler from the Department of Environmental Health. Welcome, Jess.
2: Thanks, Matt. Hi.
1: And we are joined again by returning Returning guest host, returning champion, Dr. Salma Abdallah from the Department of Global Health at the Boston University School of Public Health. Welcome back, Salma.
0: Thank you, Matt. Hello, and also a question. Yes. Do you not acknowledge my appointment at the Epi Department? You keep doing this. Do do you just not think I should be part of the Epi Department?
1: So it's interesting. I was gonna respond by saying you have a primary appointment in global health and not in epidemiology, but then that would be true of me. I have a primary in epidemiology and not so yes, Okay. okay. But I don't I don't really I don't maybe if you occasionally went to a meeting. Ooh, this uh, is that getting is, nasty that is actually, for free associations. That is, that is actually a joke. Two, I
2: need to take it outside. No, that, that is
1: a joke because Salma is constantly commenting on when I don't show up in the office. Yes. That is the only reason I said that. that I is never not do a real, that. That is not a real comment. Anyway, so sorry from the Department of Global Health and Epidemiology. Thank you, Matt. Very, very happy to have you here. Thank you for keeping us honest. As a reminder, if you can give us a rating on your favorite podcast app, it will help others find us. So now on to the show. And this is the only part that I really have to, to wing, but I will, I will get it right. So today in our first segment, which is our Journal Club segment, we are going to look at a study on blood-based tests for early cancer detection. In the second part of the podcast, our deep dive, we're going to talk about work-related causes of mental health conditions. And then in our third segment, which is our Amazing and Amusing, we'll get into some things that make us laugh out loud or we just found fascinating. So segment one, we're going to talk about an article that looked at blood-based tests for early cancer detection. It was published in The Lancet, and the study was entitled Blood-Based Tests for Multi-Cancer Early Detection – parentheses, Pathfinder, name of the study, a prospective cohort study by first author Deb Schrag of Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center in New York, New York. I don't have any headlines on this one, but Jess, can you start off by just sort of telling us what they did in this study?
2: I can, and 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 wow, what an interesting idea and kind of an interesting application here. So if we step back just for a quick second to take a look or think about the context of this research, cancer is the second most common. Cause of death in the United States and in Europe and many places around the world, with approximately 2 million new cases diagnosed each year. And one of the challenges with cancer diagnoses is that now they are very specific to certain types of cancer, and they are often not very good at detecting early stage cancer. So this study was based on the idea that maybe it's possible to use a blood screening approach, a single blood test to identify early signals of many different types of cancer. So a kind of a powerful idea. And the idea that this sort of blood test could detect types of cancer that are particularly not well-suited to existing screening approaches or to cancers that are treatable early on but not later on, things like pancreatic cancer, for example. So like, wow, what an idea. This study, interestingly, was led by an organization called GRAIL, which is a healthcare technology company that then engaged a number of different health networks that I'll talk about in a minute. So this study, it appears, was largely designed and implemented by this company, kind of a, as a corporate test of their technology. So this, in this study, they are testing a particular approach to multi-cancer early detection. They use the acronym MCED, which I'll go for as MSED. 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 Although Salma was warning me that the oncologists in our audience might be like, ah, in case that's not correct, But we will say it's MSED. So this study.
1: M C ed.
2: M C Mick Ed. M C D. All right. We'll go with we'll go with MSED. MSED. So this study is testing a particular MSED approach um, developed by the Grail Company, as I said. It tests for cancer-specific DNA methylation patterns from cell-free DNA that is circulating in the blood. And there's an increasing number of these kind of, I don't know if they're diagnostic tests, but kind of identification tests using cell-free DNA circulating in the blood. There's a lot of tests now targeting prenatal diagnoses using this technology. Um, so this is an application of that technology now towards cancer identification. And so this MSET assessment can identify, as they claim, more than 50 distinct cancer types from a single blood draw. And this comes from some of their preliminary work. The MSET assessment provides a binary kind of cancer yes, no results and then there's a computer algorithm that's used to predict the type of cancer based on the methylation patterns that are identified in the sample. So this is the Pathfinder study. So they were engaging in this test of the MSED assessment in the Pathfinder study, which is a prospective cohort study based within seven US health networks, including Sutter Health in California, Dana-Farber Cancer Institute in Boston, the Mayo Clinic in Minnesota, Cleveland Clinic in Ohio, and other locations in Oregon, Texas, Utah, Virginia, Florida, and Washington State. So this was a national sample. The eligibility for this study was 50 years and older, and they organized study participants into two groups based on whether or not they had additional cancer risk factors like smoking, genetic risk factors for cancer, or a personal cancer history. Potential participants were excluded if they were currently undergoing cancer diagnostics or treatment, had untreated cancer, or had had cancer within the last three years. So the primary outcome for this study, there were a few. The first was prevalence of a positive test in their assessment. Then time required to achieve diagnostic resolution following a positive test. And the third is the nature and extent of follow-up testing after a positive test. So what was interesting about this particular study is they weren't just looking at the positive and negative predictive values of their, those were the secondary assessments. They were looking at kind of what happened after someone got a positive test in terms of the next steps diagnostically and clinically. So those were their primary outcomes, was the the time to achieve a diagnostic resolution, nature and extent of follow-up testing after a positive test and also the prevalence of a positive test in their sample. Secondary outcomes were maybe the ones that we would have thought about first, things like positive and negative predictive value of their assessment, the accuracy, true positives versus the false positive rate, those sorts of things. The ultimate cancer diagnosis was established by pathological laboratory or radiographic confirmation following a positive MSED assessment, not on the basis of the MSED test alone. And they had a 12-month follow-up period where they tested participants in the beginning of the period and then followed them for 12 months to see if they had cancer diagnoses or not during that period of time. So the study took place from December 2019 to December 2020, and they enrolled 6,662 participants, of which 6,225 provided analyzable samples. The participants were predominantly white and college-educated and also up-to-date with their cancer screening, so perhaps were not the most generalizable sample. They were healthier and wealthier and more white than most individuals in the United States, for example. The participants provided a blood sample, which was then assessed using the MSET approach for cell-free DNA and the methylation patterns. And if they were detected, it was aligned using probability maps for cancer type of the greatest likelihood on the basis of the methylation patterns observed. For participants for whom the test was positive, the trial did not specify what the clinician was supposed to do in that circumstance. It didn't specify follow-up diagnostics or treatments as one of their questions, one of their outcomes was to see what providers would do with this information. So getting to their findings, cutting to the chase, the cancer signal was detected in 1.4 percent of their 6,600 or so participants, which was 92 people, including one4 percent 5% of those who had additional cancer risk factors, and a little bit less, 1.2% of those without additional risk factors. For those who had a positive result, 38% were determined to actually have cancer in follow-up assessments. These were the true positives. And 62% of those who had a positive result were considered false positives because they didn't have clinically diagnosed cancer at the end of the 12-month period. The positive predictive value was higher among those with additional cancer risk factors. It was 43% versus those without other risk factors, where it was 31%. Of those without a positive cancer signal, 95.5% were true negatives, while 1.3% were false negatives. And overall, the negative predictive value was very high in the study, more than 98%, and specificity also was over 99%. The median number of clinical visits, lab tests, and imaging tests were similar for true positive and false positives, although true positives were more likely to undergo non-surgical and surgical procedures after their test result. The mean time to diagnostic resolution was 79 days, with a shorter time for true positives of 57 days versus false positives 162 days, and three-quarters of the true positives had diagnostic resolution within three months. 92% of participants with a positive MSED result had imaging tests, and the majority also had metabolic blood panels conducted after their tests. The group of investigators also tested a refined MSED test, and they compared the refined test to the test that they began their assessment with, and the refined test had improved diagnostic accuracy. Some of the limitations noted by the authors in this study was the duration of the follow-up period— which was one year, 12 months, hypothetically could have missed some cancer diagnoses maybe that happened after that period of time. So maybe that was not quite long enough. They noted, as I mentioned earlier, that their sample was healthier and less diverse than could have been and included people who were actively engaged already in healthcare. So they hypothesized they could have seen a bit of a healthy volunteer effect here. They also did not focus on cost of these assessments, the availability of having these methylation assessments done with regular access. Or they also noted that access to imaging and diagnostic tests often is dictated by someone's insurance coverage, where in this particular study, the study sponsor, this Grail company, paid for any tests, so perhaps led towards a greater number of diagnostic tests than might have been standard or expected under regular clinical care. The authors concluded that the MSED screening did reveal early cancers, which was interesting, for which screening tests don't exist, including cancers of the small intestine, pancreas, and the bile ducts. And they noted that nearly half, so 48% of the diagnosed cancers were done so at stage one or two, which were early signals providing opportunities to treat these cancers early. And so the authors concluded that the single blood test could be effectively used to screen for multiple cancers at an early stage.
1: Okay, super interesting. So we've got a blood test for cancer, and I'll make the assumption here that if we had a blood test, which is you know pretty non-invasive test, to be able to detect cancers earlier, for which earlier detection actually mattered, for which there was treatment for which intervening earlier would actually improve outcomes... This presumably then would be a good thing, and we have a test with some evidence of some positive diagnostic properties, though we can discuss how good we think they are. Salma, you and I remember – so you have to remember that I thought we were going to be talking about a different study when I – I had read the study, but I was thinking of a different one. And you said you had some concerns, and I was thinking at the time of a different study, so I was – curious as to what your concerns were going to be, but I have some concerns about this study, so I'm guessing we might have some similar ones. So tell me positives and negatives. What did you like? What did you not like?
0: I liked it was a study. Well,
1: oh, okay. <laughs> All blood right. blood
0: tests. I feel bad because this is the second time I'm here, and I feel like I am also going to have a lot of thoughts about this study that maybe the next time, hopefully, I'll have a positive thought on a study.
1: Okay. All right.
0: So so just before I, I start on this rant, maybe maybe just quickly I'll say... So you said like positive, it was 48% stage one or stage two. So for the negatives, most of the false negatives were actually also stage one and stage two. The percentage there was 73%. Yep. And to me, from the start, that's just that defeats the purpose because part of the argument there is like you actually detect things quickly at stage one and stage two. That's why you're doing a lot of this work. So... If you're starting with thought positives of like 73%, that's much higher than the positive of 48% of detecting early. So at least to me, that's like one glaring issue with how they're reporting the study. And to be honest, I think, so to be fair to them, I think it's a good study. I think the one reason that got me, I have two reasons that made me skeptical about the study. The first one is how they report the finding. It's a feasibility study. And unless you actually go through, it in details, when you just read the abstract, you think that they fix the problem. I think I think that's the main issue. F- fix
1: the problem of sc- early screening? Of early screening. Mm-hmm. Like,
0: I think to me, if you're thinking about a feasibility study, and, and I think sometimes it seemed to me that the limitations were downplayed in the numbers presented versus the strengths were actually just presented in a very significant way. And to me, that was part of the issue. The other question I had, which maybe then becomes a philosophical question of what is the value of screening in general.
1: Yeah, I think that we want to talk about that. So go yeah. what yeah. is what is it? Answer the question and then we don't have to talk about it.
0: So that's a question. I think I think I think maybe it's a philosophical issue, but I think I always like the analogy that an oncologist, I heard an oncologist once make, which is you usually have three types of cancers. You have a bird, you have a turtle, and you have a rabbit. Turtles are usually maybe you have a cancer you might mm-hmm. have it your entire life, you're not even thinking about it, and you might die and we only find it during autopsy. Prostate mm-hmm. cancer would
1: be the, the classic mm-hmm. example exactly. of that. Yeah. Yep.
0: Or you have a rabbit where maybe it would be really helpful to detect it early, so that might be then helpful to have a screening test. Or if you have a pen, if you have an enclosure for your pets, so if those are animals, then you have birds. Even if you have an enclosure because you don't have a roof, birds are always going to fly. So those are very aggressive cancers mm-hmm. that usually a screening would not be helpful with.
1: Because even if we, even if we detected Detect them. them with screening, it, we, would, we would end up on average detecting them late.
0: Exactly. And I always yep. think about pancreatic cancer, even though yep. like, there's debates there. So I think then the question here with with the results that we've seen, I think they're, they though we're trying to catch the rabbits. And from what I'm reading, and again, maybe I'm reading it not in the best way possible. It seems to me they're catching maybe rabbits, maybe, but then a lot of turtles are, or not. But you can't catch birds with this, which you don't need to. But you're supposed to catch more rabbits, and it seems to me maybe you're catching more turtles. But beyond that, beyond the value of the screening itself, it seems like then you have a lot of false positives. And if you have a resolution time of 162 days, then you have a lot of people who are going through expensive diagnostic measures and... They're also living in anxiety for 162 to do days just because they had a false positive. Yep. So that's the other issue I have.
1: Yep. Yeah. So, so, and just to be clear, though, the, what you're describing is yeah. the problem with all screening, that's right? True. I mean, this is, yeah. this is uh, all screening for anything that is is going to cause severe anxiety, right? And of right. course, why are we screening for it if it's yeah. not something that you would be particularly concerned about yeah. or that we can do something about? So, so screening has this this problem. We don't want to do screening for things that we have no early treatment for, or treatment for, period. We don't, like, what's, you know, there's there's no benefit. We can just sort of tell people. I mean, the, the exception to that might be, like, infectious diseases where you can screen, you can't maybe treat, but you could at least have the potential to prevent future transmission. But we're not talking about that. We're talking about cancer here. So, so if there's no early treatment, we don't want to screen. Also, if we are getting more false positives than true positives, then we might not want to screen because, as you say, we're gonna cause so much anxiety. It depends, of course, whose perspective you're looking at here. From the patient's perspective, the positive predictive value really matters, right? The negative predictive value matters too. But the positive predictive value, meaning if I get a positive test, how likely is it to be a true positive, matters a lot. Because you 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 will create an intense amount of anxiety if you tell somebody you might have, you know, X cancer. It doesn't matter if you tell them, I mean, it matters a little bit, but it really doesn't matter. If you say to them, "Look, chances are still low. This is just a screening test. You are still going to create an immense amount of anxiety." So we want to be really careful when it comes to screening. The question, I guess, would be then though, is the overall benefit, right? So uh, clearly, we're going to increase anxiety for some people who, for whom there was no need, but we may also detect, you know, more cancers that potentially have the ability to treat early. So it depends on what those cancers are, right? As you're saying, if we're yeah. if what we're detecting here is just prostate cancer, yeah. which we're not, but I'm just saying if we were, then you would say this isn't really worth it because most people, as you say, who get prostate cancer don't actually need treatment.
0: Do you think the study as written or the numbers we're seeing would actually lead you to believe we can detect more cancers? That's not the conclusion I came up with just reading this study.
1: Oh, well, sorry. No, I would say, I would say, yes, we can detect, well, sorry, more or earlier. It's not that we wouldn't detect these cancers eventually, right? If there are things that are going to be severe enough, they will come to light at some point, presumably for most people, right? Some people would die and but most people will be, will be diagnosed eventually. The question is, can we diagnose it earlier and potentially intervene? Because otherwise, why are we doing it? And, and, you know, I don't, I don't know the answer to that. I don't know that we know that from this.
0: I don't know as well. That's the thing. So I don't know if this study, the way it's actually written, maybe maybe the way it's designed is different. I don't know if it provides me with an answer, especially looking at the cost that, they present. And I'm also thinking here, like they, they identified 122 cancers. Of those, 29% were detected using MCID, and 31% were actually detected using the usual screening. And... were detected clinically. So their tool detected 29%. I think, to me, if the focus was more on like people who were at risk or focus more on the, like actually the study itself focused more on the type of cancers that were detected, that might be more helpful. And they did talk about them, but that was not the focus. I think the main focus from the beginning was like, I read the feasibility part at the end, but mm-hmm. reading the ab- abstract at the beginning, it felt like it was actually like, this is the fix for a lot of things. Again, maybe it was just my bias reading, but it seemed like it wasn't really presenting the truth from what happened in that study. Like Looking at the, those numbers, I would say, like just regular screening detected more cancers than the MSET. This is the regular screening. So then a question, as you said, maybe would be then would adding MSET to the equation lead to more detections or not, on more earlier detections? More I don't know if this detections. provides. Yeah. I don't know if this provides the answer for me.
1: It provides some, Jess.
2: I was gonna say. I mean, I I guess I I, I viewed this through a little bit of a different lens that I was my interpretation of this was that it's it's not really feasible right now to roll this out in any substantial no, sure. in any substantial yeah. way but this was almost like a test of concept it was like if if we applied this in a large sample what would we find with the implicit implication at least into my understanding that this is the direction we're all moving in that kind of this is this is the the next phase of cancer screening and detection will be these optimally. I mean, it seems like, you know, that the promise of this is huge, right? To say it's, you know, it goes back to like Elizabeth Holmes and Theranos. Can you take a single blood sample and can you detect early stage cancer? And that's a huge concept. And I agree with you that the, you know, the false positives are really problematic. And you could see how that would cause a tremendous amount of anxiety. But I didn't, at the end of this, I didn't feel like they were saying, we're done, we're moving forward. It was kind of like, this is a really interesting new technology. It has some promise. It found these handful of cancers, in particular, at an early stage that we really could not have otherwise detected. And that's information, right? It is
1: information. The question becomes, is it useful information in the sense that what we need to know is that these cancers would become a problem and early detection mm-hmm. is therefore more useful because otherwise right. you're just telling like when, when, when people get a prostate cancer diagnosis, they are concerned even if what you're telling them is, you know, it's probably not a big deal. There's still, there's still mm-hmm. concern even for people who can can process that information and say, okay, it's probably not a big deal. There's still, there's still that sort of anxiety in your head where if you had never known, you know, you would have been you 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 would have been blissfully unaware. Of course, then there are the percentage of prostate cancers that are really aggressive. Yeah. those those generally you know screening doesn't doesn't help because you don't you don't generally catch them quick enough on average, as you say. Yeah. I, it's a really tricky but one. To
2: that point, though, if if scientifically we have the ability as a collective, not like the three of us, but like as yep. a collective, we have the ability to share with someone data about their health. In a, you know, like maybe you might have this type of cancer that might affect your lifespan. Who decides whether or not we provide that information?
0: That's a great question. And and the way you actually framed the study, and just looking at the interpretation now, I think you have a more generous interpretation. And I think I actually agree with it. No, I actually you made me think, okay, maybe I'm too biased because I think my answer to the question you just said is. I don't know if we should share or know all the information we can about what's going on in our bodies. I don't know if that's actually the right answer for us. Right. So I think maybe that's my bias. That's what led right. me to read this study the way I read it. That's but I so do think your interpretation is, is, is so maybe the more accurate
1: one. I, I agree with both of those. I agree that I think you you... Your interpretation was different from mine but I also agree with you I'm not when I first started in in this field I would have said well, you always want more information and like as long as you just tell people that like this is not perfect information it's just a test and you got to have it confirmed now nah, I, I, I don't believe that at all I actually think we do real serious harm having seen people go through lots of invasive medical procedures yes. that have real costs. To both financial costs, but 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 in terms of people's mental health and physical health, for things that you know can often turn out to be low low value, you know we're not low value, but I mean we're we're often detecting false positives. The more information you have, the more false positives you're going to have, unless you have really really good tests, and we don't have really good tests. So moving in this direction sounds to me like a good idea, but until they have really fine tuned it and really gotten it so that, that that positive predictive value is very high, I'm skeptical, not because I don't think that they, you know, the, the test has value, but because I think the the harms are real.
2: I agree with you. And the question is what is that level? And, well, who and decides. also, and also, your question the, right, was right. wasn't
1: was your question was who decides who that? Decides, and I, that I don't know. I, right? I know what yeah. the decision is for me. I here's what I know. I know there's a lot of controversy right now around mm. breast cancer screening. Yes, um, sure. and I can't weigh in one way or the other because I don't know the literature well enough. But I do know there are big harms from false positive breast cancer screens. There is unnecessary treatment that comes from. False positive breast cancer screens. So that is that is harm. On the other hand, there are women for whom breast cancer screening many women saves who are identified early, regardless. Right, right. So, there I, is a lobby for uh, continuing breast cancer screening exactly as it is because once you tell somebody that they've had a positive screen, they got treated and they got better. So regardless of whether they ever need that Blair? treatment, they feel strongly about it, and I understand that. Mm.
0: So my question there would be. What is the counterfactual? I think that's what we always say. Of well, they detected it early and they got better. Do we know? And no, I think that's the question. Then, do like, not. do we know if that wasn't detected early, what happens? But I think it's very difficult to tell someone we detected this early and we took it out, and to them not to think what was what would have been the counterfactual. It would always feel like, well, this saved my life. Whether they saved their lives or not, that's a different story. It, it, I, think I think that's the individuals. We story.
2: often for for maybe cancers with greater prevalence. I think we. We often do know. I think breast cancer. There are certain types of cancer cells that are very aggressive. You know, yep. they. It depends
0: on the type of. It breast depends cancer. on the t- right, and so yeah. I sure. think sure.
2: identifying those cell types early yeah. on. In someone's disease course, yeah. you could you could say this is an aggressive form, Absolutely. and you could see you could you could you could hypothesize the counterfactual. Yeah. Some of these cancers that were picked up in this study, though, I don't think fall into that category where you could necessarily say we know the trajectory of this particular sort of small intestine cancer yeah. if detected at this moment with this type of cancer cell. So sometimes I think we have that information. Yeah,
1: Not always. Yeah, I-, I will say once people have gotten treatment. They feel 100% it they their lives. know the counterfactual. Yes. I mean, we saw this during exactly. COVID. Yeah. People who got vaccinated and then got COVID would say on social media, thank goodness I got vaccinated because it would have been so much worse. Exactly. We don't know that. Yes. Mm-hmm. For some people, it would have been exactly the same. Yes. For some people, obviously, it did. But yes. for some people, it didn't. But yes. people feel once they have gotten a treatment and gotten better, they know what would have happened had they not. And yes. you cannot, it's very hard to convince people that they don't know. It's hard though where we wait.
2: Yeah, I was just going to say it's hard when we wait into these conversations though. And I think COVID is a good example of who decides what information to share. Yeah. Yeah. And then what happens to us as a field if there is a perception that we don't share information or we could gather and you know, collect and possess information that we think, oh, people can't handle this. They're too likely to be stressed out I or, don't. right. And so I, I, in, in some ways it it might not be beneficial to the, yeah. larger, the larger movement in that way.
0: I think that's fair. And I think, so I'm always actually on that side. So that's really interesting because I think if you had asked me, is it okay to share that we're not uncertain about something? I always think we should share our uncertainties when it comes to our field. So we should be very clear about this is what we know and this is what we don't know. And I do think maybe for me, this is what the issue here, where it felt like if I were a lay person, I wouldn't know what we don't know. But again, maybe this is my reading comes from. And the, this is the second part of where I thought about is when it comes to health policy, maybe this is why I look at it from the angle of if we have those tests and I'm thinking now probably there would be used more, what does it do to a healthcare system? And should we think about like, at least this is the point of view I look at those things from. I, my assumption would be it would be used more and then it would actually lead to more people being bankrupt or, or actually just using more money for things that might not be as helpful to their health. We don't know the answer, but I think I, think as I said maybe, maybe it's a question that should we ask people, would you like to know? And then maybe like, would you want to carry the risks? But I think ultimately it's just, it's going to be very difficult. Yep.
1: Mm -hmm. All right. I think we, we have to move on, but I think that was a, that was a super interesting discussion. And I think this whole screening issue is really complex. And I think, you know, it's, it's, it's one that I think in some ways is harder to communicate than some of the, the, just sort of the, you know, intervention based studies that we, we often talk about. All right, Jess, you want to talk us through segment two?
2: I do. So this was a paper that was part of a series also in The Lancet focused on work-related causes of mental health. And it was led by Regulis et al. in Denmark, but it looks like it's an international collaboration of researchers. And so this series in The Lancet was broadly focused on the implications of mental health from stressors at work. And they focused on mental health in a few different ways, they looked at work as an incident factor for mental disorders, a causal factor for mental disorders, as well as mental health problems that they distinguished from mental disorders, including kind of subclinical and subthreshold sorts of disorders. And then they looked also at this construct of mental well-being, which is what I think a lot of workplaces have focused in general on, not so much mental disorders or mental health problems, but ways to promote mental well-being. And the authors reviewed literature looking at associations between workplace factors having to do with your job, like stress on the job or control, locus of control in your job, and then the, you know, and looking at the association with different so- sorts of mental health outcomes, noticing that Most of the interventions that come into the workplace focused on mental health are focused on the individual level, which I think we can certainly talk about, not on kind of systemic pressures of of working. And the authors noted here, too, that there lacks a a literature that supports causality here. And that's one of the key challenges is that in reviewing these different studies, they find lots of associations, but not a lot of evidence of causality.
1: So, okay. So I have, I have a lot of thoughts on this and I, in particular, I, I want to talk about this issue of the individual level locus here, right? So work, work is stressful for, for many, many people, right? It's just kind of inherent to the nature of work. It seems, does it have to be? I, I'm not clear. I'm not clear on whether, you know, like you could create a workplace that was worry-free, stress-free and still actually produce anything of, of value to society, but maybe that's, maybe that's entirely possible regardless of whether, so, so I would accept the fact that work is probably always going to be stressful to me in some sense, but there are going to be degrees of, of stress that, that I'm going to experience in my workplace. And it seems to me that workplaces have over time recognized that employee burnout is a problem, that employee stress is a problem, but it's a societal problem, right? We were, we're as a, society, we are all experiencing more stress than we used to. Life is getting more complicated. Social media is creating more tension, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And the solutions that we pose, and I think, you know, I don't don't blame workplaces for this because I think workplaces have limited options, that the solutions are not societal solutions, right? We're not trying to make work easier by regulating, you know, things about work that would make life less stressful. We are trying to say, you know here's a here's a meditation program that you can go through or you know here's uh, access to counseling services or whatever it is and uh, some places are you know providing even less than that. And I'm just curious your thoughts about whether this is this is something that really can be addressed on an individual level. Or is this something structural? And I will just throw out there that I am a huge proponent of the idea of a four-day work week. I know mm. Salma is going to tell me that that is absurd. We should go to a six-day work week. <laughs> but I am a huge proponent of this. And I'm convinced we are going to get a national mandated four-day work week the day that I retire. No. I'm convinced that's what's going to happen. I'm convinced. Thoughts on, thoughts on whether, whether this is a, even addressable at the individual level?
0: Can I start first by saying I actually did like this article?
1: You can. So. You can, but we're still going to think of you as the yeah. one who hates everything. Hates
0: articles. Um, no, and then I have a very like, important question. First, why are you stressed? You're next door, right next door to me. And I'm a very de- delightful person.
2: Yeah, And I yeah. thought
0: I made your work environment very cheerful. So this is actually very hurtful to hear
1: right now. That's what I'm... i The reason I wanted to talk about this study was I didn't know how to tell you.
0: (laughs) Because the other thing I thought about, I was wondering if just maybe, like, you're kind of subtweeting me here. The only thing (laughs) clearly that is very negative is bullying
1: at the workplace. And (laughs) and I experienced bullying from you, is that what you're saying? (laughs) Yeah. Okay.
0: So I... I'm a structuralist by just like, by yeah. the virtue of the work I'm doing, yeah. and I do.
1: Meaning, you think that structural is solutions are almost always are, more important? Yeah, yeah, I I tend to agree. Uh, more yeah. important for I I think that to, I could be wrong, but I think that is probably unquestionably true. Exactly. The question is though, for yeah, is, is it even like are we even doing anything with individual level approaches? I mean, we're not doing nothing, right? Yeah. I mean, counseling helps, right? Yeah. Meditation helps. But do they help enough that it's it's gonna do anything significant to this problem?
0: So and I think here it depends on what do you mean by individual level. Because I think so I was thinking looking at this here, clearly like job insecurity is an important clearly stressor here. So that is something we need to work on on the on the structural level. And I would say at the beginning I was reading this and I had the same thought of, well, you're are you telling me we need to do interventions? by the workplace. And then I thought, oh, this is not going to be helpful because mm-hmm. we're thinking about structural issues. But I'm looking at the recommendations, I actually think, I think they're providing structural level recommendations at the regulation level.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: I don't know, I think if you asked me five years ago, I would have said individual level interventions do nothing. Yeah. I think now I would say maybe they work sometimes.
1: I think they can have some benefit. I I don't think they're useless. I just think compared to the size of the problem. Yes, they're not. I think it also
2: depends on the type of workplace. I mean, I think we are, we're coming at this from our perspective from an academic university workplace. These authors mention also kind of people who are working in agricultural jobs or low income jobs where it's, it's a very different sort of stress where it would be very clear or maybe more clear to us, you know, a lot of my training is in occupational health. And when Mm. you think about hierarchy of controls in the classic occupational health sense, those are always systematic and structural and imposing those sort of administrative type controls to improve mental health in the workforce would be very clear. Exactly. Would be, you know, and I think, but I think translating that to like an, like our, our work environment, it's not so clear what those administrative, you know, what those administrative controls or those kind of upstream controls would be, yeah. yeah, within like a university setting, for example, or within kind of we're in a soft money biomedical research work environment and what that looks like, kind of what are those sorts of controls that would maybe improve sense of job security or... Yeah, I mean one of the yeah. biggest
1: one of the biggest stresses we all face is that we have to cover a percentage right. of our salary through grants. And that's and, a
2: structural thing. Yeah, right? but yeah.
1: how but how would you change that, right? I mean, you 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 can't I don't think you could say universities are required to, you know, cover your salary in perpetuity forever until you retire, you know, regardless of whether or not you can actually bre- I mean you could, but then what would end up happening is universities would just hire far, far fewer people because they wouldn't Mm -hmm. have the resources to be able to guarantee that. So, you know, so you'd have fewer jobs and maybe.
0: And I think here also the distinction, I'm trying to say this in the least controversial way. Maybe we should draw a distinction between a job where, like the jobs that you're mentioning are really difficult and you yeah. need to think about OSHA. And we need regulations because we know people are usually in those, those jobs because they need the money. But if they had a chance, probably maybe they will not be in that job. Or if they would Some like, them, exactly, them, yeah. they need a safer environment and maybe they don't have the voice in the workplace to do yeah. something about it.
2: Yeah.
0: And But even in academic institution, I can think I can think about A lot of other maybe staff positions that are very difficult for people and we need to think about structural interventions for them. I think when I think about faculty, even though I know the stress that comes from trying to get grants, it is very difficult for me to feel sympathetic
1: I, I'm, I'm, I was gonna say <laughs> exactly. I, I, I want to make it clear <laughs> yes we, we have stressful right. jobs in some ways but, but compared exactly. comparatively there mm-hmm. yeah. you know, are much more stressful jobs and not I'm not trying to suggest mm-hmm. that
0: yeah and uh,
1: it, poor me and yeah. that's not what I'm trying to say I'm and I just as you said
0: say, I think what just said is just like what, how do you make the distinction between them like what is the like, what what right. is needed at that level because also for most of this is you People who went to a faculty academic position, they, they self-selected into that position. Yep. Yep. So that's another, So I think also like a type of stressor where it's imposed on you versus a stressor that you self-selected. I'm not saying then you have to suffer through the stressor, but then maybe it's a different question we need to ask about the individual versus a structural intervention here.
2: I do think, though, it's not to excuse the universities or I mean, I know hospitals have made a lot of strides in the last decade Mm -hmm. to try to reduce burnout among medical residents, for example, kind of which, again, is a very like you're saying, a self-selected group of people who go in knowing it's stressful. It's difficult. This is going to be challenging work, but I'm opting in anyway. But still, you know, the organizations try at times to kind of reduce, reduce the burden on that, on that workforce. And it's a really interesting question. I also, you know, like what, what could a university do? And, you know, there's certain structures just, you know, we're just, we're looking at this right now, just through our own personal lenses, you know, and there's certain structures that can, and then certain structures that are so deeply entrenched that, that they would, you know, it seems, for example, that the soft money environment that we're in would be something that's just not changeable, right? But maybe, you know, I don't know. Maybe there's ways to, it, to, you know, to think about it. I, so, yeah. just
0: would you go to a four-day yeah. work week?
2: I don't know. It sounds kind of nice to go to a four-day work week, but I, I, I also think in our field people would still work six days a week. Yeah, I know. I don't think I our know. field people would actually work four days a week, but.
1: Yeah. I know, but I just, I think I would feel better if somebody told me there was right. a four-day work week. Mm-hmm. No, Just to respond to what yeah. you said there, I, no, I actually think you're right. I mean, there are actually things, and I actually mm-hmm. think our, not to brag about our institution, but I actually think we structurally went from a system where it, it wasn't totally clear how much of your funding you had to bring into a system where, you know, effectively if you teach, you know, two classes, you get a, a substantial portion of your salary covered, my life got less stressful when that policy went into place. So I, I actually do believe that universities can can do things, right. uh, even if we're just focused on universities. So other workplaces, too, can do things structurally that would actually change the stress levels in mm-hmm. employees. And And there is an incentive to do so, right? I mean, workplaces have competing needs, but one of them, right, if you have an unhappy employee workforce – that's going to cause you lots of problems especially if you have high turnover and burnout depends on the industry you're in for some industries probably they don't care as much but for our industry there's a substantial investment in people um, so there's incentive but there's also the you know the other competing interests where where places want to spend money and you know those come you know those 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 butt heads and it's it's challenging all right. Shall we move on to our our last segment, which is our amazing and abusing? Mm-hmm. I'm gonna go first because I just had a, a a short one that I wanted to talk about, and I this has kind of been on my my list of things that I wanted to to talk to you all about for ages. This actually came out in 2022. So And I just sort of was holding on to it and never got around to bringing it in. But this was a, a study that was published in PNAS called Observing Many Researchers Using the Same Data and Hypotheses Reveal a Hidden Universe of Uncertainty. Mm-hmm. We have talked about the, mm-hmm. the general topic here, but this was a specific paper where a group went out and they, effectively what they did was they had a specific research question that they were interested in and they had they wanted to identify how different researchers would approach that same question. So what they did was they they had 73 different research teams and observed the different research decisions that they made to independently test the same prominent social science hypothesis which was that greater immigration reduces support for social policies mm-hmm. among the public. And then they let them, you know, go ahead and analyze the data any way that they felt was appropriate. And they came to a vast <laughs> difference in the conclusions that people came to based on the analytic decisions that they made. They, of course, were observing them so then they could collect data on the decisions that they made and could try to analyze whether or not they could then identify what different you know, different choices led to these different conclusions. And it seems like they, they actually couldn't. So more than 95% of the total variance in numerical results remains unexplained even after qualitative coding of all the identifiable decisions in Teams workflow, which is to say, even watching somebody and trying to figure out the decisions that they're making to come to their conclusions, They couldn't actually then predict what outcome they were going to come to. And it just sort of says like there is so much flexibility and variability in the results that you can get. And, you know, the the social sciences world has been going through this process of really pushing for pre-registration, the idea that if you're going to do a study, that you should (laughs) pre-register your hypothesis and your analytic plan so that you don't then just make a whole bunch of decisions, see what you know what what gives you the result that you want and then publish it or but even even being more generous and just saying you know just that flexibility in decision making even if it's you know you're only making one set of decisions and you're sticking to it if you have no hypothesis for why those decisions could be made becomes somewhat arbitrary and the idea that you could come to so many different or or, or so much variability in the the conclusions people draw i just find absolutely fascinating and at the same time really disturbing for the reproducibility of the of the results that we are we are getting
2: it's alarming and upsetting it really, is. Right, yeah. really. really alarming yeah. so
1: i know i don't know what to do with that but i
2: know i remember a study many years ago where it was even one it, different than what you're what you're talking about, but it was even like one psychology researcher reproduced his study multiple times with different groups of undergraduates at his institution and just did his own kind of reliability assessment. And like each time the results were dramatically different. Wow. So it's like a upsetting, But, you know, when you read this, you know, you expect a certain level of precision that might not be there. Yeah.
1: I Should we really quit concerning. social science? <laughs> Should we what?
0: Quit social science? Well,
1: I don't think social sciences. I don't yeah. think that the problems that we are finding here wouldn't apply to our fields.
0: Yeah, we're, I consider us like social science. Oh, sorry,
1: sorry. We are a social science. <laughs> yeah. Then in that case, then I would say this no. Is a, this is a debate Definitely I have in not. my
2: house all the time. If we're if we're if epidemiology is a social science. Oh, really? Yes. What? I
0: think of it as a social science. I, I think
2: of it actually as not a social science, but maybe it's the way it's the way you, well, the way you it, perform it. I don't know. It's some kind of hybrid. But if there's, I don't know. When I think of social science, I think of psychology. It's or I think of actual. Physical re- it's not a phys- it's, it's not a physi- laboratory-based physical yeah. science.
1: Right. But we can do intervention studies. We can, and we have a but clear. But you can do intervention studies right. in, in psychology and yeah. and so- sociology and things like that. So I right. don't. Yeah, I guess that is isn't the defining. That is factor. so
0: interesting. I'd have never thought of it.
1: As, as anything
0: except that's so interesting. It's so interesting. Yeah, it's yeah. So interesting. I don't. I mean, yeah. of the three of us, I actually think of you as the only scientist here. Yes. So that's so
1: interesting because I often will refer to <laughs> so epidemiology and the social sciences. Interesting. So clearly, yeah. I'm making a distinction. Yeah. I don't know what it is. Okay. Our yeah. listeners are going to have to tell We're us. You're
0: going to have to call in. Yeah. Us, call right? in now. Call in. Call call
1: in. Tell us. All right, Salma, what do you got for us?
0: <laughs> I'm not sure if I have a lot, but um, <laughs> do you like bubbles? Oh, who doesn't sure. love bubbles? Okay. <laughs> what do you like about bubbles?
1: They they float in the air. They, okay. they And they're kind of like
2: shimmery. You can chase nice. them around. Okay. Yeah. Okay.
1: Who, who doesn't w I show me somebody who doesn't oh also isn't isn't it true that if if a person is angry, you tell them to say the word bubble and you cannot be unhappy after saying the word bubble.
0: Was that a social science study? I think it was.
1: <laughs> Did I make this up? Oh, or is it a different word? I don't know. My kids tell me this. I'm gonna look no it up while you're idea. while you're
0: Okay, so you said bursting is Part of why you like them, right? Absolutely. Mm-hmm. So apparently physicists in France found a way to have bubbles stay in the air for 465 days. No, would no. you like a bubble that does that? But Like if yes. you're, a, say you're
2: a two and a half year old. <laughs> right. And you just, cause like, you know, and the, the kids always get so disappointed when they go to cheap, and they touch it and it pops. Okay. So maybe that would have some utility for small children. That is maybe really that's too long, but maybe like at least twenty minutes. <laughs> yeah. I would
1: like it, but then it's in a different category of bubble. Like that's the yeah, bubble yeah. that you you play with for mm-hmm. a long time, and you bounce around whatever. Like A balloon, yeah. instead of the popping kind of bubble. You that can have so different kind of bubbles for different parts of your life.
0: And also, like Jess just, just gave Jessica just just gave us like a good use of it because I kept kept thinking like why is this useful? <laughs> <laughs> but it seems like they actually published in the American Physical Society Journal. They found a way to insert glycerol into bubbles, which then leads to the, to glycerol absorbing more water from the air, reducing evaporation, and the bubble stayed for 465. Just days. floating
1: around, or like, could you, could I poke it?
0: Um, that's a very good question. I, I don't know the answer for that. Look like at the small chubby finger. <laughs> like what,
2: yeah, what would what would
1: happen? You know. <laughs>
0: <laughs> but apparently, the, there might be uses in the future because people are asking what is the benefit from this.
1: There's always a. Is there, like, maybe, maybe there's in like the a, tech,
0: a technological application more than in like the a birthday,
2: birthday
1: party <laughs> application.
0: <laughs> <laughs> right. That's the hope right. one day. They think maybe more mm. about mm-hmm. if we can use glycerol for more things mm-hmm. that evaporate and reduce the evaporation, that might be helpful. Ah. But then I learned apparently, there are a lot of Guinness World Records relating to bubbles, which I had no idea this mm. was the case. So there is the tallest freestanding bubble, which was 35.25 feet. There is the longest freestanding bubble, which was 105 feet. And the largest bubble gum bubble, which I don't know if I would classify it as a bubble, but they do. I would. Which was... 20 inches in diameter.
1: Wow. 20 inches. That's a big bubble. Yeah.
0: What do you think about a world that we have a lot of Guinness records when it comes to bubbles?
1: <laughs> I think it's important. Okay. Can I Can I say, uh, I heard this the other day. Yeah. Do you know what the Guinness Book of World Records holder is for the book that is stolen the most from libraries? No. The Guinness Book of World Records. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yes. That's funny. Okay, second thing, a yeah. quick search of the internet for the word bubbles and angry Says, it is impossible to say the word bubbles angrily. Why is it impossible to say the word bubbles angrily? Has anyone been able to sound truly angry saying the word bubbles? So clearly, this is a thing. Bubbles. Bubble. Bubble. Go ahead. Bubble. Go ahead.
0: That seems you
2: angry. You don't sound angry. <laughs> Try it again. Try it again. Dismisses me out of yeah. it. Yeah.
1: <laughs> All right. Jess, what do you got?
2: Oh, my goodness. I have something quite different. This was an article from Science from the end of October entitled Demographic and Hormonal Evidence for Menopause in Wild Chimpanzees. Did you see this?
1: Demographic evidence? Yes, for for
2: menopause in in wild chimpanzees. So I was like, this is so interesting. But apparently humans are among one of a very few number of species that go through menopause. And so there is a whole area of research focused on the evolutionary benefits of living beyond your reproductive years. Isn't it yes. called the grandmother
0: okay. effect? Yes. Yeah. Okay, yes. Yeah. So the
2: grandmother fa- Anyway, so I was like, I was reading this and it yeah. was really fascinating. Yeah. So one of the reasons, and I yeah. digress briefly, one of the reasons why it's believed that human women live beyond their reproductive years this is this thing was talking about called the grandmother effect, which is to support younger generations having children. There's also a, what do they call it? Reproductive conflict theory, which says that as women age, they are more biologically related to an increased number of people in their circle. And so for a selection process uh, for genetic improvement, it's actually better that younger women have children rather than older women and so that oh. might be a reason why women stop being able to have children into their older years because okay. Okay. genetically they they would be more related to a greater number of people in their midst anyway those are two theories that these researchers were focused on but this is a this was a project led by folks at UCLA and Arizona State where they were working with a group of about 200 female chimpanzees in Uganda, and they had 21 years of blood samples from this population of chimpanzees. And so they looked across the whole that across that whole period for evidence of hormones that are associated with menopause. And so like FSH and LH and, you know, decreasing levels of, of estrogens, for example. And they found that the Female chimpanzees went into menopause or that there was hormonal evidence that there was hormonal evidence that they went into menopause, that their level of fertility kind of declined at around 30 and that none of them had babies after age 50, but it was very common that they
0: lived beyond age 50.
1: Feels like something we would have would have figured out just because again somebody would have observed that. You know what's another
0: animal that has menopause? I was trying to remember. Yeah, Killer killer whales.
2: Killer whales. This was the other thing I learned that like whales and chimpanzees are now one of the two. Species in addition to humans, where they've identified menopause.
1: Maybe knowledge. just
2: no one has ever turtles? done the research. Yeah.
1: Well, turtles are. That's interesting. Mammals.
0: Yeah, turtles would not, <laughs> would not be.
2: Yes. Turtles might live a long time, but maybe not, not having mammals. menopause. But it's interesting. And so they were talking about why that might be the case in this population of chimpanzees, and they and they were also suggesting that menopause might happen in other species, but we just don't observe it because their habitats have been so affected exactly. by human, uh, you know. Uh, interference and so they don't have the lifespan or you know there's a certain amount of 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 comfortableness in your lifespan that you would have to have to even live past menopause exactly yeah. um, and so yeah. they were saying it could be human induced that there are so few types of animals that go through menopause but then they talked about the grandmother hypothesis but they said I would just note that the grandmother hypothesis does not play in here because the uh, the older adult chimpanzees live separate from their daughters so so that the grandmother effect they're saying no on the grandmother effect but maybe on the kind of reproductive
1: conflict
0: situation I think the grandmother effect applies to whales actually so that's (laughs) surprising yeah I've heard (laughs) you
1: told me about this I feel Mm
0: -hmm. like I just found an article here that answers your question maybe our phones are listening to us so i <laughs> looked it up and it says why killer whales go through menopause but elephants don't yeah. I'm going to send it to
1: you okay but what's the answer what's the answer <laughs> okay well, yeah, i, I mean, just going to
0: read the article if I, in real time.
1: If, I, if I I just feel like I'm mm. left hanging in the wind here
0: I don't have an account uh, uh, I'm sorry
1: <laughs> paywalls paywalls are the worst all right. Well, that is the end of our program. We want to thank Nick Guler at the BU School of Public Health for sound and production and Mark Takakshi for producing in this episode. Thanks for joining us. We hope you enjoyed it. And we hope you will download our next episode.